I'm so excited that we got to speak to Sam Nolan-Smith because I adore her and because I remember the first time I met her and I'd seen her for a long time on on Facebook and I'd actually done one of her courses. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. I not did. know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was a few it was one of the only sort of things that I don't I very rarely do online programs. But she, there was something about her. There was something about what she was saying that I felt I needed to hear at that time. I think it was clearing some sort of blocks or something. And I just I love listening to her. I love the sound of her voice. I love what she says. And at Problogger, when we spoke at Problogger that year, she was there. And I remember her getting into the lift and she was pregnant and That's just right. yeah, glowy. Yeah. And I sort of just wanted to touch her <laughs> because I was like, oh, this She's is real. You. You're in the flesh. You're so amazing. I, I kind of had a bit of a celeb crush on this woman and never, ever have I been disappointed or left wanting when she shares anything. We were both like when we were brainstorming ideas for people to bring on the podcast, we were both like, ooh, yeah. Yeah, because she is like she is the person that she is online. When you see her in person, you just like she just has such a aura, like a feminine quality, which is rare. You know what? She challenges me. She challenges me to think beyond what I know. And that's what this conversation totally. is about. We thought we were talking about visibility, well, which we do. We actually should say that this episode happened twice. <laughs> <laughs> so and it, it took two completely Yeah. It took two completely different tangents. So the first episode we recorded was really about visibility and fear. And yep. then uh, technical issues meant that that interview completely <laughs> disappeared. And the only track left was me, which had about three <laughs> words in it because I was just mesmerised by her. <laughs> and then the second time around, it's taken a different slant mm-hmm. and a really powerful one. And I think mm-hmm. during it, we, we both, um, you know, had little moments ourselves. Uh, I had I had big moments. <laughs> they weren't little moments. Only because this is what I'm – she just goes that bit deeper. She's been on her own path for a really long time and I, I feel so surface level around her, but I trust her to take me to somewhere new. And But I also, some, I also feel confronted sometimes by what she shares. And if, you, if you're struggling with why you're not feeling confident to show up or why there's issues around you getting visible and speaking your, your truth right because because yeah. she is all about speaking your truth like being visible is not just about being seen by other people it's about no. speaking about the things that you feel really called to speak about without the fear of hurting other people's feelings or that awful confrontational kind of feeling that a lot of us are trying to avoid yeah Yeah, and so she shares, and it really blew my mind for sure, uh, about where so many of us are coming from in terms of the privileged lives that we've led and how some people feel they have voices intrinsically, just they have something to share and they'll say it and people will listen, and there's so many people who don't feel that way. 
And so what I think that you'll get from listening to this episode is a sense, a deeper sense of this notion of visibility and who who you are, what you're trying to say and why it matters to be heard. Totally. So should we just play the app? I reckon we should just play the freaking app. Go. <laughs> Keeping Good Company, honest and transparent conversations between two good mates on an entrepreneurial journey together. Join Lisa Cordoff and myself, Carly Nimmo, while we explore what it means to create, grow and keep good company. Life and business is better when you're keeping good company. So I'd really like to know, Sam, I think of myself as someone who doesn't have too many issues, just sharing, showing up on social media, in my programs. Uh, You know, I have a background in TV. I certainly wasn't comfortable back then with a big, huge crew around me and all eyes on me and take one and it was pretty stressful. So I've sort of found that entry into social media and sticking a phone in my face and recording a little video, cool. That feels visible to me. But when you talk about visibility, what are you really talking about and why do we as women find it so hard? Oh, what a lovely question. So I'm talking about a couple of things. I'm not, what I'm not talking about is I'm not talking about the kind of visibility that comes from hustle. And I think everybody knows that hustle can work absolutely does work on one level and works at a huge cost to yourself, often your relationships, often your health. And so when I think about visibility, that level, that type of visibility or that pathway to visibility is really unappealing to me. And I think it's really unappealing to a lot of women. And What I'm really talking about when I talk about visibility is, first of all, becoming visible to yourself, understanding who you are, what the truth of yourself is, and then radiating out from there, allowing the truth of yourself to emanate out from you so that you then magnetize the people who are needing to hear from you. So remembering that we have this capacity, we have a radiatory capacity and we have a magnetic capacity. So we send things out, we send energy out, we send thoughts out, we send emotions out and we magnetize back on the basis of that. And if you don't know yourself well, if you haven't become visible to yourself, then you are radiating out something that is not what you want to get back in return. And what happens is that as women, we all, every single woman on the planet lives in a patriarchal society at the moment in this particular point in history. And what that means is that the preferencing in terms of economics, in terms of politics, in terms of 
any form of power sits with the males, sits with the masculine, sits with men. And so the stories, the narrative that we are all holding in our bodies as women is a story that we are second best, we're second class citizens, and we don't even know that we're carrying that most of the time because this system, this systemic equality, inequality in which we are swimming is what we call the world, is what we call life. And it's not really until you... You know, you either, I think for me, I think it wasn't until I went to university and I started doing subjects on, you know, feminist subjects in a variety of of disciplines and started looking at things like the data around, well, what are women being paid versus what are men being paid, who are in the top positions in different industries, et cetera. You start looking at this and as a woman you think, but I know that I'm not I'm not like naturally inferior to men. I know that I can do as just as good a job as they can do in those roles. What is going on? And when you start to sort of go down that rabbit hole, you realize, oh, there's a whole system that's set in place that's keeping us in that role of second class. And so when you make that visible to yourself, when you see that you are a part of that system and that that this is something that you have inherited and internalized with the stories being your opinions aren't quite as important as men's, that you're all just a little bit emotional, you all once a month just get a little bit crazy, you're not reliable, you're not always rational, you're not always reasonable. You, uh, we have certain expectations of you in terms of your bodies, in terms of how attractive you're supposed to be. We give you more attention and we give you more airtime the more attractive we consider you to be. Everything is referencing the expectation of the male. And so when we're living in that environment, we have internalized all of that and then we start to question ourselves. We're like, maybe I don't know as much as other people. Maybe I'm not as smart. Maybe I need another qualification. Maybe maybe other people know more than me or maybe I can't do that video because I'm too fat or I don't have the right skin color or I don't have the right hair color or I don't have, you know, blah, 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 on and on and on. And so we've got all of this going on within as a consequence of what's going on without. And this is particularly detrimental to women's capacity to speak up and to be heard in the world. And we're all going around thinking, this is just life. And, you know, often women will say to me, but I feel confident enough to speak up in certain environments. And what I say to them is, just check. Are there, you know, maybe if you're really confident to speak up at home or maybe around your family or your friends, but then you get into the workplace and something happens and you feel really uncomfortable about speaking up, or you might have noticed, and this is like a really common thing that people are talking more and more about now, that you'll say something, an idea in a meeting, for example, and all the men in the room will just kind of like look at you blindly. And then five minutes, 10 minutes later, one of the men in the room will say the exact same thing and they'll all go, oh, brilliant, genius, what a great idea. 
and this is why <laughs> this is why women came up with this idea of the amplification effect. And the first time I heard about it was in the Obama White House, where women, and this was a pretty enlightened, pretty open White House, where it's not like the current administration where, you know, Obama was openly a feminist, openly, you know, wanted to promote women. And still all the women were finding that they were they were saying something and the men were just kind of half listening, not even really hearing them. And so what they did was they created this circumstance where they would say something, a woman would say something and every other woman in the room would go, oh my God, amazing. They didn't even care whether they agreed with them or not. They just were doing it to promote women's voices in spaces where we have not traditionally and historically been heard. And so we're all in this process together of moving from a place where we weren't heard at all, let's say in the public sphere, we weren't heard at all in the workplace to slowly, 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 our voices are being heard more and more, but we all are needing to support one another to do that. And one of the things that has happened in the personal development realm is it hasn't taken the into account this systemic inequality, this system that we live in. And so every single woman is doing this on her own, thinking it's just my visibility blocks, it's just my, you know, it's just my insecurities, it's just my self-doubt. And of course it's not. There's a bigger agenda at play and both of these things are happening simultaneously where at at a systemic level we have been conditioned to doubt ourselves, to question ourselves, to not speak up. And then at an individual level this has played out in a whole variety of ways in our own lives from you know, young children where we might have put our hand up and got something wrong in class or we stood up at the school play and people laughed at us or whatever it might be. There's all of those types of things going on at the same time as we're needing to deal with the conditioning that we have we have taken on by virtue of being females in a patriarchal society. And do you think while you were, when you were talking about how Some people can feel like, you know, yeah, I speak up all the time and I'm visible. But then, you know, what one thing that came up for me while you were talking about that is boundaries. And so many women struggling with healthy boundaries, particularly in business. Do you think that's related to visibility too? Mm, Such a good question. I think that women absolutely struggle with boundaries because we operate in in this place where what we're told is our value comes from being givers. Our value comes from being nurturers. Our value is in looking after everybody else first. So that that is one way that the boundaries stuff plays out because suddenly we're like, I have to, I have to care for them. I have to care for them. I have to care for them. Oh, and maybe there's just a little bit left for me at the end. And what men on the other hand have been taught is you're autonomous beings. You have your own you need to look after yourself and then as you look after yourself, you're able to look after others. And so the thing that happens, let's say, for example, I haven't taken the business example, but we can go to that. With the with the issue of, you know, you're over-nurturing, you're over-nurturing, you're giving to everybody else because that's what you've been told is your role and that's what you've been told makes you important. 
you then get lost in that. You become completely invisible. And one of the things that I work with women on in one of my programs, Visible Woman, is around the invisibility of mothers and the way that we we end up being lost by virtue of the fact that we have just given, 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 and not actually stood from a place of this is who I am. I I too matter, I too am valuable and I'm going to fill myself up and then, so that's all boundary setting, and then I'm going to give to others. But that's a new story for women. That's a really new story. And I think the same thing happens in business. For me, the way it happens, it plays out in business is give too much to clients, give too much to, you know, give too much away for free, give too much to my community without ever asking for anything in return because that's a part of the conditioning as well, isn't it? That you don't ask, you couldn't ask for, it's it's seen to be somehow inappropriate to ask for what you want. The amount of times that I, the amount of time I spend with women just encouraging them to that it's okay to ask for what you want and that that's not overstepping the mark, that's not being too confident, that's not being brash, is extraordinary. There is just around the world women are sort of just silently dying inside because the things that they want are not being tended. Their own inner gardens are not being watered because they're so busy attending to the needs of everybody else. So this is part of what I spoke about, first of all, about becoming visible to yourself. If you can't see that that's happening to you, that you're you're doing that, you're, you're actively doing that as a consequence of the stories that you have taken on board, the conditioning that you've received, and if you haven't become like critic, a critical thinker and you haven't looked at that critically and understood, oh my God, this is this has taught me to behave in ways that work against me. If you haven't done that, then you just get more and more exhausted. You try harder and harder and harder to please everybody else and you become less and less and less fulfilled until eventually there becomes this epidemic of people who are depressed and anxious and and on medication which, hello, is the world. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Including me at times. Um, and I think the, sorry, I just um, wanted to say, I think like one thing that, that I've seen a lot and particularly in myself too, is this idea of um, then then becoming invisible, you know? So, um, and you're obviously invisible to yourself, but then also feeling completely invisible Absolutely. to the world. And then this resentment kicks in because nobody is seeing what you can kind of see inside yeah. of you. Yeah. The invisibility of any kind of mental health issue is huge. The the way that you then so what the general the general, but not completely it's it's not exclusively true. The general approach that women take when we when we get in any way we come up against any of these blocks is to shrink back. So we generally, rather than kind of push through them, so men have obviously they have their own inner blocks as well, but the conditioning of a man is push through it. 
keep going. Just force yourself through it. Like sheer force of will will get you through. And women, as women, we have tried to do this. We really have taken on board the masculine and we've said, well, I'm going to push through too. And so, so many of us learned to do that and then collapsed. And that's why we have, you know, huge numbers of women who have some level of adrenal fatigue related problem. And then what happens either, so then either that, you know, that turns things around and it introduces people to another way. Or the other thing that women do is they come up against the blocks and then their natural way, then their natural way by virtue of what they have been taught is shrink back. Because what, what we have been told by society is don't take up too much space. Don't be bothersome. Don't be too noisy. They, they, there's these, I've put these, together these clips of um, the language that men have used around Hillary Clinton and Margaret Thatcher and Julia Gillard and a number of other women who are, you know, either prime ministers or president in presidential campaigns, etc. And they all use the same language, which is women are shrill. The minute that we start to use our voices, m- there are like vast swags of the population who don't actually want to even hear a woman's voice. So naturally, this this shrill label is really, really common and it's basically used any time that a woman starts to assert, be assertive. She gets, She's labelled as bossy, she's labelled as aggressive. If a man was the similar level of assertive, he would be seen as a leader. He would be seen as confident. And so we've got this horrifically fine line to be walking at any one point in time. And this is why watching, uh, watching the US presidential elections was fascinating because Hillary Clinton, being a feminist for her whole life, of course, was hugely, hugely aware of the, you know, how this was all playing out. And she was trying to walk the finest of fine lines. And and what happens is in terms of the shrinking is the m- majority of the time what we do is we go okay oh i'm sorry that i've i've been too much let me shrink back and then if we continue to do this and continue to do this and continue to do this this is this kills the soul this is really dampening on the soul and we start to then move into levels of anxiety, levels of depression, suppression of rage, and and we become even more invisible because, of course, the society societal narrative is we don't want to hear about mental health problems that they that makes you crazy, and we want to you know you can't talk about that. That's of course changing. I, I'm really encouraged by how things are changing in terms of mental health, uh, but it's not changing to the extent that people are saying, do you see that we have a society which creates this? Do you see that this is not just about individuals with problems, which is what the the story is. It's like your problem. You sort it out. Well, no, it's not just your problem. It's the whole conditioning of society. (laughs) Exactly. This doesn't work and it's making us crazy. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I 
I love, like, my brain is on fire right now. It's actually burning <laughs> with so much to say and ask. Um, because to tell you the truth, when you, that first, the way that you first answered my question, I feel kind of triggered a little bit because I haven't experienced because I think, oh, I mustn't be particularly self-aware because I've never, I, I was feeling very grateful for my secondary schooling uh, because I was public speaking captain like all the way through and then I was school captain. It was an all-girls Catholic school and I was encouraged to have a voice. I felt like I absolutely had something to say. I was the sayer. I would research a topic, I'd put my palm cards together, I'd deliver a talk, I'd, I'd find the arguments in a debate, you know, and we would present our arguments. We would be debating against the boys, girls, didn't matter um, because a good argument is a good argument. And when, and so then I, so I, I just had this expectation that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And, but then, oh no, so then when I was at university and I was there with I was doing similar subjects to the guy I was with and um, we were together for about six years But and lovely, truly lovely guy. But I remember I always got better marks than him and that would be upsetting for him but probably upsetting for a best friend who's a girl who's trying her butt off too maybe. Um, but it was one thing that he said which was... Like me yeah. in our friendship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but we, he said to me once, um, I would find it very difficult for my partner to earn more money than me. Yeah. And I didn't internalize that. I just thought it was wrong. So, and I thought, well, this isn't going to work. And so when I found, um, when I met Nick and, you know, we've been together for, I don't know, 13 years or something. The reason why I stuck with him was because he saw me for my highest potential. Mm. Like, you know, world is your oyster list. Oh, you know, go for it. Just go. Like, let's do this thing called life. And every male boss I've had has felt the same, that same vibe. Like, yeah, Lisa, just have a crack. The women who I've worked for tore me to shreds. What's with that? So, so many different things to talk about there. <laughs> Sorry, that is just like one thing that I've got written down. <laughs> settle in, peeps, settle in. So this is why I want to go back to the fact that you're in an all-girls school. This is why people send girls to all-girls yeah, schools. This is one thing that really came up for me. You were at an all-girls school, so you weren't having to share the stage exactly. with any men. So it would be like... This is this is why a lot of people really feel very strongly about sending girls to all girls schools because they want to give them the best possible kind of beginning to their life so that they do go out and into the world and they've already had all of those years of feeling super, super confident. So I think that that's the first thing that is really important to recognise. I think that it's not like every individual is living this conditioning in exactly the same way. So I was also super confident in speaking, for example, and I loved getting up and doing speeches and all of that kind of stuff. I always have. And that's not necessarily the way that the conditioning plays out for me. And one of the reasons it doesn't is because 
I live in an English-speaking country. I, my native language is English. I read as a child from the, you know, the day I was born and was a voracious reader. I'm really a lover of language. So, so one of the ways that I like to express myself is through the spoken and written word. So that kind of thing came easily to me. And I could have a very, very different story about that where I'm an immigrant child and I receive, you know, was the recipient of a lot of racism at school and so forth. And when I got up, I was the only person of color who was, you know, competing in the whatever debate team or blah, 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 blah. And, and then that would create a whole different set of internalized oppression for me. So, so the more that we stay in our, bubble of privilege, whatever our bubble of privilege looks like. And and you've got to remember, I've spoken about the patriarchy, but what I'm really talking about is a whole system. And the system preferences white, it preferences males, it preferences heterosexuality, it preferences ably bodied people, and it preferences cisgender, which is I was born a female and I stayed a female. I didn't feel that I was in the role, I was that I was really actually should be in a male body. So the more that we live in a bubble of privilege, whatever that might look like, so if your school was like predominantly white girls who were of, let's say, a middle-class background, that's a fair bit of privilege right there that you're, you're um, operating in. And what happens is we become blind to the system itself, the more that we benefit from the system. So, and we start not believing other people who tell us that's not the way it works. And we don't believe them because that hasn't been our lived experience. But what we haven't known is I'm coming, I'm living from a position of extraordinary privilege compared with like a huge percentage of the population. And when you start to sit down and talk, and really this, I, my eyes were open to this when I started working with Aboriginal people in Australia, and they started telling me of their experience in Australia growing up, and I grew up in a lily white, it was so monocultural, it was crazy, you know, community where I didn't see any kind of, I didn't see racism because there was nobody there to be racist too, because everybody was <laughs> white. I mean, it was just mad. You know, and then I went out into the world. And then the more that I would speak to uh, p- Aboriginal people and I worked with refugees for a while, et cetera, et cetera, the more that I started to realize, oh my goodness, my experience is very, very different. And that's when I started to come to terms with the fact, and this is what I'm talking about when I say we have to look within, I came to terms with the fact that, oh, I am part of a system that privileges me over a whole lot of other people. And by just going along my merry way and just, you know, looking after myself, I'm actually maintaining that system. And that is a really uncomfortable thing to realise really uncomfortable. And when I started to look at that for myself, and I still look at that on a regular basis, and I have to look at it and go away from it from time to time, because I just can't handle it. Like I I literally find it so confronting. And the only thing that it has done is it has made me much more uh, compassionate toward men 
because I understand now why the white male is so fragile and so, so resistant to anybody suggesting that he might be at the top of the pile because he just doesn't see it. He, he, he can't see it unless he actively goes looking for it. And it is very easy to choose not to go actively looking for it when you're benefiting from the system. There's, there's no sort of external motivation to do that. There's only the internal motivation that says, actually, I want to see the truth of myself. I want to see the truth of this world. And I want to be free of the shackles that I've been born into, and I want everybody else to be free of those shackles. And so not everybody is making that choice. Well, it's hard to make that decision when the shackles actually fall in your benefit. So hard, right, Carly? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? But it's it's funny because we just had our 20-year anniversary uh, reunion for school, for high school, and uh, and all these amazing women who have these amazing stories uh, and were sharing how badly that they were bullied mm. at high school. And they said something about uh, me being in the popular group or something, that the cool group. I was like, what cool group? <laughs> I, I don't even. And that's. That's because you were exactly. in the cool group. You only know about the cool group when you're not exactly. In the cool and they <laughs> like and me. they were tortured, like a lot of therapy from high school. And how and what you're, ex- I, I'm, I'm resonating with what you're saying because I normalized uh, that I was, you know, whether it was turning a blind eye, whether it was knowing it was happening and not saying anything, whether it was really not connecting with the pain of the people who were suffering, and. Like, I just, I'm totally hearing what you're saying. I had no reason to, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm hearing you, but on different levels than maybe the, the patriarch. But I get, well, what I'm getting is what, what I'm trying to say is that I can't talk right now because so much is going on in my head. But what I'm trying to say is that I get you about the system that I have not necessarily particularly internalized for myself a glass ceiling never felt like that existed for me but I can see that I am existing in a very unfair system and I think that this stuff is starting to come up now because of the personal development work that so many women have done you know it you know kind of kicked off in the 60s and then really intensified at the end of the last century and now moving into this century, women have not stopped in terms of, you know, showing up to yoga classes and going to Reiki and blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And I think that what has happened is, and this is, this is purely like I'm just really starting to ask myself, why now is this coming up? Because we had the second wave of feminism in the 60s where women, you know, fought for one of the things that they fought for then was equal pay for equal work. And what we found was that it's really a hard slog to get that change happening at the level of the system itself. And so you, you, what you're doing is you're trying to uh, change laws and you're, you're in debates and arguments with people who, i.e. men, who just can't even see that there's a problem. And then all these years and years and years of personal development work happened. And what I believe is a consequence of that is that that there's a whole group now of women who have 
done enough work to basically give a shit about other people who because the the process of personal evolution is one from caring about self and caring about one's own tribe and caring about belonging to that you know that community whatever it looks like normally that looks like our nuclear family then we create another family whatever that might look like and then just looking after those people but then as we evolve as human beings as we do more and more work we actually start to turn outside of ourselves and start to care about what's happening in the rest of the world and we start to realize oh i can have i can contribute i can be of service to other people i can dedicate my life to creating positive change in the world that others will benefit from not just me and the more that that, that has been made possible the more that that women of privilege, particularly white women, because white women are really, you know, really a lot of the people who are doing this work because of our privilege, because we're in positions where we do have the ability to either, you know, have partners who are really supportive or we've got, we're not in positions where we're just scraping by to survive. Like there's so many people on the planet who are just surviving And, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about you running retreats and things. And one of the things that one of my spiritual teachers once said to me was, said to all of us when we were on retreat, what a deep privilege it is to be able to go on retreat because most of the people on the planet do not have that privilege, do cannot afford, cannot afford, first of all, to pay for a retreat and cannot afford to take the time out of just surviving, just, you know, each day dealing with how am I going to bring in enough money to feed myself, et cetera, et cetera, to spend a couple of days, whatever it might be, on retreat is is a sign of our privilege. And because we've been able, all of these things have come together, we now are at a position, in a position where we're able to say, how am I now? contributing to a system that not only is not working for me, but it's not working for anybody else either. And how can I change this? And I really think that this is what the Dalai Lama was speaking about when he said, Western women will change the world. I mean, it's literally happening before our eyes. But I wanted to come back to something you said, Lisa, about, um, you know, I was taught I could do anything. So was I. Like my dad particularly was, you know, his message was, you can do anything. You can be anything. And I think there are a lot of women of our generation who were told the same thing. And I was speaking to someone the other day when the Me Too thing came out on social media and she said, I feel tricked. I feel like I was told I could do anything. And she's in, she's in a corporate environment. And she said, and now I just feel like I've got as far as I can possibly go. And I just keep coming up against barrier, against barrier, against barrier. And I think that a lot of women in corporate are having a similar experience and from what, I, what I'm hearing from them. And this is why there's been this mass move of women out of corporate and into running their own businesses because, because there is still this really entrenched way of being within the corporate world, which definitely has a ceiling on it, no matter how good you are and no matter how confident you are. 
And I mean, you think about one of the most confident women in the world, one of the most articulate women in the world, Hillary Clinton, she couldn't even break through the ceiling. And, you know, she, I don't think she's got too many visibility blocks. And I don't think there are other, you know, there are lots of other women. I, if you're Australian, you know, Julie Bishop and she, was talking, I watched a video with her recently where she was talking about how she was the one woman in cabinet when when they first got into government and she was talking about this same thing when people just, men would just ignore her completely. Now, she is one of the most articulate women in Australian politics and one of the most confident and forceful women in Australian politics. She hasn't got a lot of visibility blocks. She's perfectly happy to get on camera and talk about, you know, world events and negotiate with prime ministers and and presidents and leaders of other countries and go to, you know, G20, et cetera, et cetera. She doesn't, that's not a woman with visibility blocks, but even still she was coming up against a ceiling. So I think that you'd, I don't say these things to say we're all, you know, we may as well just give up. I say this so that we understand the war, the the sea in which we're swimming. Because if you don't know the sea in which you're swimming, you don't know why th- when things do, when you do come up against problems, you don't know why you're coming up against them. You don't realise that you don't have the inoculation. You haven't, you, you're in the poisonous waters and you haven't been inoculated from you've been maybe because your whiteness you've been inoculated from parts of it but your gender means you're not inoculated against other parts of it so there's a there's a level of being able to understand all of that and the reason that I want everybody to understand that is because then we can clear it and I really believe that this being using the personal development tools uh that certainly that I've learned and you know so many people now use we can clear both the personal circumstances of our lives and we can clear this conditioning at a mass level. And I think that once we've got enough women doing that, we will see enormous transformation in the system itself and it will have ramifications not just for women, it will have ramifications for the environment, it will have ramifications for health, it will have ramifications for every economics and the way that that the whole entire capitalist system operates. And I think that is the level of change that is possible if women start purely with the simplest thing of just what am I afraid to say? What am I afraid to speak up and share with the world? Why am I worried about sharing my opinions? I think every woman on the planet, I believe this about men too, but I, my focus is on women, has a very special message to give to the world, has a very particular circumstances, lived experience that has come together in exactly the way that it needs to come in order for her to contribute, to, to share something very, very particular and special with the, with the world that only she can share. And I think that when we are caught by our own visibility blocks, the things that are in no way our own fault, but we now have the responsibility to do something about, then the world really misses out when, if we choose not to do that work of clearing that and sharing the message. For sure. So when you talk about visibility blocks, how can they, like, how do they look? What are the kind of, um, how do they they show up? up? They sound like 
damned if I do, damned if I don't. If I put something on social media, I'm going to be trolled. I I don't want to do uh, Facebook Lives because I I need to get my hair done. I need to get my makeup done. I'm not, I have need to lose 10 more kilos. They sound like I'm terrified to write a book because I I don't know what my ex-community, ex-boyfriend, mum and dad, blah, 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 will think about it. I can't talk about that because it's too controversial. It's too woo-woo. People will hate me. I don't know enough. These are the ways that people speak about choosing to not either be seen or be heard. And most people, if you really, really sit with them, are really quite opinionated, you know, which everybody (laughs) should be. (laughs) And yet so many are not sharing those opinions with the world. And it's because of these fears of criticism, trolling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these are very real things that are happening in the world. And women see other women stepping up and speaking out and being attacked. All that needs to happen is one woman gets attacked and then thousands decide to stay small again. This is the, this is the power of the system at the moment is that we, it's like, it's like the witch hunts. You only need to put one, one woman, burn one woman at the stake and every other woman knows exactly where her place is. So we see this play out over and over and over and over again. And then stories get wrapped around that about, I really do want to start my own business, but I, I just couldn't possibly ask people to buy something from me. Like the fear of being seen to sell is huge in entrepreneurial circles, particularly for women. That's, that's another of the ways. Or I can't reach out to that person and ask them to be on my podcast because they're too big or they're too whatever, too X, Y, Z, choose your, you know, your reason. So these are the different ways that it plays out. And every day as a business owner, I am coming up against my own, the limits of my visibility comfort zone, let's say. And so every time that I find myself going, oh, I'd like to reach out to that person, but... And then I tell myself a little story and the little story can be something like they'd be too busy or they're too important or I'm too busy or I'll do that later or uh, exactly, exactly. I'm not big enough. And so then what happens? That keeps me small. That keeps me smaller than I otherwise would be if I stopped, and this is this is a new habit for me because it was only about maybe 18 months ago that I realized visibility blocks were such a big thing for my business and such a and, and were keeping my business at a certain level and not allowing me to move further on the path. And and I would keep thinking, I've done everything. Like this whole, you know, good girl thing was playing out, but I've played by the rules. I've learned everything I needed to learn. I've implemented everything that I needed to implement. Why isn't it growing at a more rapid rate? And for me, what I eventually realized and why I moved into this work in the first place was, oh my God, I'm terrified of being seen. I'm terrified of the consequences of being seen by large audiences. So I was perfectly fine 
at a certain level, perfectly comfortable talking to people, teaching classes, et cetera, et cetera. And then anything beyond that was like felt like life and death to me. And I didn't even know this was happening for years. And when I looked at it, I realized I am completely terrified of the crowds. This, this, and I, I can trace back why it is. And there were two things going on, both a fear of the crowds and the mob and being attacked by the mob and due to personal circumstances as, as a child and terrified of strangers because I was a really shy kid and then I got taught that strangers were dangerous. And so I had never cleared the story about strangers being dangerous. And so every time a new person, like, you know, when you first start your business and you know every single person who's on your your email list. (laughs) Yeah, your mum, your auntie, your sister. And then every single time a stranger came on my list, it would slightly trigger that fear, the fear, the stranger danger fear. And I didn't know what was going on for a while. I just knew I felt really uncomfortable because because all this stuff would come up about them being dangerous, but also what would they think? I don't know who they are. I can't control their response to to my blog posts or my emails. I don't have, I can't speak to them personally and explain to them, you know, win them over by explaining to them how, how well-intentioned I am and how this is really, you know, useful work and all the things that you do at a really subconscious level every time you have a conversation with somebody where you're given time to articulate your position in order to win them over. And, of course, when they're just coming through via electronic means and they're just popping up, I was like, I don't even know who these people are. How can I build relationships with these people? You know, all of this stuff was coming up. And for a long time I had no idea what it was. I just, and I didn't have the language around it. And then when I finally realised, oh, this is all my own stuff. This is all connected to visibility. And these are visibility blocks. And that was when I suddenly went, and this is the work you have to do. So that's why I moved into it. It's so interesting. You know, just as you're talking, just things keep coming up and up and up for me. I feel like I'm in therapy a little bit. Um, but (laughs) like I just sent Carly a message before today saying, I think, I feel like I just came out on my Facebook page because I have Lisa caught up as my Facebook page, which is my, you know, business page for the small steps business. And I shared that I'm doing this podcast and my block with that has been, I don't want people to see this as a business because then they might think I'm taking advantage of them or profiting from them or something. Like I haven't wanted to share that there's this total, there's there's Lisa, the person that they see on that page is a result big time now of my entrepreneurial journey. And I need to be able to talk about it. I need to be able to share it. And also for the fact that so many of them are doing exactly the same thing that I did, which is starting their own business while their kids are young. And, but I had this, I have this huge block around being seen as successful. Yes. Because, and I couldn't be totally visible in my uh, I'm a person who I, I've built a pretty 
great business in a short amount of time. I find it hard to say those words, listen to my shrillness. She says in a very <laughs> high-pitched voice. <laughs> I know, but it's because of how I'm worried other women might see me or maybe it's the Australian tall poppiness mm. or something. I'm not too sure what it is, but there's something big there because I, I literally use the words to Carly, I feel like I came out. Like as in I've had this big secret and suddenly I've shared and it. And this is so important. This is so important to mention because so many women have that exact same block, which is the block of I'm secretly running a business but don't tell anybody that I'm running a business because then it would mean all of these things, like I'm actually that I actually care about making money, that I actually care about the lifestyle that I, li- you know, that I live, da, 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 whatever it might be. I had the same exact same fear for years where – Mine was because I was, my story around it was I'm in the spiritual realm. I was teaching, first of all, I was teaching, my business started, I was teaching yoga and then I moved in on from there to sort of personal transformation work. And I, for a long time, was terrified of people thinking that I was a businesswoman. I just would not own that label at all. And it wasn't until a few years into my business that lots of other Therapists, teacher, yoga teachers, et cetera, et cetera, were coming to me saying, how are you doing it? I want to do it too, that I realized I have to start owning the business stuff. Like I just, I have to own it. But that was its whole, a whole series of blocks around being seen as a businesswoman because I had very negative stories about that. Yeah, and I've had a similar thing just recently, not similar in some ways, So, you know, I have my killer copy voiceover agency and then I have all this other stuff going on and my passion is all the other stuff, carlosophies, you know, my public speaking, writing, all that kind of jazz and I've always had something on the go for the last nearly 10 years in addition to killer copy but I felt like I needed to be two people because killer copy is a company that works with primarily corporates. So I haven't, like, so I felt like I've lived two kind of lives where one, I've been the person who runs Killer Copy and they don't know anything about any of the rest of my life. They don't know about the podcast. So my LinkedIn profile is like Killer Copy Carly. It has nothing in there really about any of the stuff that I love. And I'm wanting to move into this space where, um, you know, where that is my primary focus and it is already. But in terms of, you know, I want to go back in and have some fun on LinkedIn again because I'm hearing all this amazing stuff about it right now. And I want to go back in and have some fun, but I'm feeling torn between how I'm seen by a certain group of people in my life, as in my clients for Killer Copy, and my new direction and that's something that comes up for a lot of us too, right? When we've got the f- the foot in both camps, like Lisa with Small Steps Living and now this, where where is the like, – it's like, it's like we feel like we need to have a complete commonality or a complete integration of the two yeah. before we can kind of come out. This is out. such a common thing. Every, every woman I've ever spoken to who's left some kind of – career where they were known in their career, for example, and then moved into running their own business has had the same experience where they're like, what will my former colleagues think of this 
business that I'm running, particularly if they move into some kind of coaching or something like that, personal brand related, I had definitely the same thing because I was this social justice warrior who was, you know, very serious and I was like, I was an advocate. So, you know, I was, I was in an adversarial role a lot of the time. And then I moved into being a spiritual teacher where I was so soft and so, you know, I was all compassion and all love. And they could not have been, <laughs> I could not have been more different. <laughs> and I would think mm-hmm. the people who I used to work with must think, she has either had a lobotomy or <laughs> she has been stolen by the aliens and somebody else has replaced her because I was so different. And it really has taken me, so I started my business in 2009, it's taken me until really this year to work out how to integrate the social justice warrior with the compassionate, soulful teacher slash mentor and how to bring those two together. And I think that that has forced me to work through visibility block after visibility block after visibility block because I kept thinking I had to be one or the other and I didn't know how to present Mm. the wholeness of myself to my community. I only knew how to present a part of myself. So that brings us back to exactly what I was talking about at the beginning about when we aren't willing to look and really see, well, what's really here to be cleared out, to be understood, and then to be shared, then we we do end up like blocking off these parts of ourselves and and just showing a piece. And we know in our heart of hearts that's not right. We know that that it doesn't feel right, but that's what we've, we've been taught to do. And so we just tell ourselves, well, that's just the way it is. But the more that you're willing to go, okay, well, now I'm in the discomfort of I've been doing small steps and living and now I'm uh, now I'm I'm out. I'm out as a person who actually, you know, is good at business. And then you're willing to move through any of the blocks that are there around that and be seen as that woman, the successful businesswoman. Then my experience anyway is then you start to see how the whole thing comes together. You finally start to see the whole picture as opposed to just sections of the picture. I love this. And so can we talk about just quickly when you say clear, when you say remove blocks, what would be some of your go-to strategies to actually do that? Yeah, sure. My, I uh first of all, think it's really important to recognize, you said it earlier in this conversation about I, I feel a bit triggered. I think nearly everything I say could potentially trigger people, <laughs> but the world, <laughs> it could potentially trigger people, right? Tr- <laughs> trigger happy is the way. I love that. <laughs> You know, and there is a thing about now trigger warnings and so forth, but and I think that that is a legitimate thing for for some kinds of mater- content and material. And I think the world is basically a, a trigger point at some point because we we have no idea. We just share these things from you know the openness of our experience and so forth, and then what what happens is a lot of the time is somebody else isn't allowing the same thing that we're allowing in our lives, and that triggers them. Because let's say, for example, you talk about, oh, I'm running a retreat this weekend and then somebody else has been wanting to run retreats forever and they've never run one. The minute that you say, I'm running, 
yeah. like me. That was me before these. I would see someone on Facebook yes. doing a ret- retreat yeah. and I'd be like, So that's a trigger, right? That's You've you been know? triggered. <laughs> and yeah. then... And you're, yeah, you're totally. self-aware yeah. enough to go, oh, okay, I've been triggered by that. But a lot of people don't recognize that. Yeah. And then they get, they fall into this trap of like just hating on the other person. <laughs> that does not do any good for them. It doesn't really affect the other person, fortunately, but it really doesn't do anything for your own, um, your own life and, and your own happiness. And so recognizing, first of all, this is what triggering looks like to me. This is what it feels like. And a really good point for that is jealousy. The minute that I'm starting to feel jealous about someone or I can't stand to see that, like if, I, if I'm like, all I can see on my Facebook feed is this one person, they're driving me bonkers, then I know that there's a trigger there, that I've been triggered by something and then I have to look within. So then, so first step is understanding I've been triggered. Second step is what's really going on? Like what's the emotion that's here? And that in and of itself is an investigation that can take some time to be good at doing. Like it's just something that we're not really in the world that we live in. Emotion has been devalued over reason and rationality. And so an emotion has been viewed suspiciously as something that could cause problems. And so we have now are learning how to befriend emotion, how to be with our emotions without running from them, without without suppressing them through food, through alcohol, through drugs, through shopping, through whatever whatever our, you know, favorite version of suppressing our emotions is. So we haven't, we haven't become, we're not very emotionally intelligent as human beings at this point in time on the planet. And so that's another whole skill to learn about, okay, I'm feeling something here. And the very first thing that I would do, I used to work with people a lot around this. And the very first thing I do when people would say, I don't even know what emotion I'm feeling is I would say, just notice that there's something. And that's the very first step just to go, there's something here. I don't know what it is. I can't even name it, but I can recognize that this is probably an emotion. That would be if you're really extremely like removed from your emotions. And then once you get used to doing that, then you can probably start to name them and you can be like, oh, there's jealousy here. Oh, there's anger here. Oh, there's frustration here. And you and I often use that language because it's like, it's not I'm angry. It's there is anger moving through my body. And if I allow it to move through my body, then it's not going to get stuck in my cells and it's not going to become part of my identity is who I am. Angry woman, depressed woman, whatever, you know, sad woman, whatever. So that's the second thing, you know, uh, recognizing emotion is here and it's okay to let it move through the body. But the thing that would get it stuck is all the stories that we have. Emotion moves through very, very quickly. It's just an energy that moves through the body very quickly, like within a couple of minutes, if we don't have a story attached to it. The minute that we attach a story to it, we kind of cement it in the body with the story itself. So I try to after, you know, really practicing this for a long time, I try to allow emotion through without any story at all. I don't even, like, I'm like, I don't even care what the story, why I'm sobbing right now. 
let's just cry it out. There's something here that needs to be cried out, so let's just cry it out. And I'm, I'm not even in need, need to know what the story is. But that's taken me, you know, quite a few years to get to that point. So if I've got story there, then the first thing is recognizing this is just a story. This is not a finite truth about the world. I can change this. I can believe it, choose to believe it or not choose to believe it. And so that's the next thing that I would do. And then the final thing that I do is, you know, there's so many different techniques that you can go around and and use and and there's so many different modalities now. And for me, I started with yoga, yoga asana, so yoga on the mat. There's many different aspects, arms to yoga. But I started with that because it was just moving my body and I wasn't having to really understand what was going on. All I knew was I went, I did these postures, and then I feel better afterwards. That's all I knew. And so if you've been triggered, that's a perfect thing to do. Go off to yoga and and just trust the process, the thousands of years ancient wisdom of yoga. But what I use now, the technique that I use a lot of, and I, I became a master practitioner in a number of years ago, is compassion key. And what I love about compassion key is it is the simplest technique I have ever found, and it is incredibly effective. And all I do is I notice that I might have some stories that I can't seem to stop telling myself. Let's say my stories are they're all they're all then nobody's going to understand. Let me take Lisa's example. Nobody's only going to understand that I um, that I uh, me coming out. They're not. They're going to judge me for be, liking business. They're going to judge me for being a good businesswoman. They're going to think that I have been trying to take their money all these years. They've been you know they're going to question my motivations or my motives or da 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 da. Let's say they're my stories and I just can't get rid of them. Then I would use compassion key and I would just stop and I would connect with my heart center and solar plexus. And I would talk to that part of myself that's going bonkers in fear. And I would just say, I'm so sorry. It's so terrifying to come out to your community. I'm so sorry. They might not understand you. I'm so sorry. They might question your motivations. I'm so sorry. They questioned your motivations before because all these fears are often coming up and connected to something that, you know, happened a long time ago. And so I'm talking about them both in the present and in the past. And I'm what I'm doing by saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, is I'm acknowledging the fear. I'm acknowledging that part of myself that is terrified. And I'm not saying, get over it. I'm saying, I'm so sorry. Effectively, what that part of me is hearing is, I hear you. Somebody sees you. Somebody sees your pain or your fear or your terror or whatever it is. And what happens is that part of ourselves that's so fearful goes, oh my God, somebody understands me. Thank God somebody sees me. And this is what this visibility, this is why it's the perfect tool for visibility because it's all about seeing the parts of yourself that were suffering, have been suffering and have felt unheard and unseen by anybody, by the world. And when you are able to direct self-compassion toward those parts of you, they heal and they heal instantaneously. So that's the tool I use and I use it all the time, every day. I'll be doing something and then I'll have this idea, oh, I should do this or I do this promotion or da 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 or whatever. And then a fear might come up and I'll be like, okay, I've got a choice right now. I've been triggered. I could 
just pretend it's not happening and just try and push through and work through, which is one strategy we use when fear comes up. But instead, what I do is I say, take five minutes, just take five minutes and find out what's going on inside. I feel what the emotion is. I ask myself, is there any story here? If there is, I give myself compassion, 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 and then I get on with my day. And that way I don't keep sabotaging myself over and over and over and over again throughout the day. I'm in no way perfect on this at all. And quite often I'll be like, yeah, there's a trigger there and I don't want to deal with it right now. And so so I'll just get really busy with something else. Because sometimes you do just get over the work, right? You're just like, oh, fuck. Seriously, yes. I've got to look yeah, at myself Yeah, exactly, which again. is one why I really like Compassion Key because <laughs> it's super fast so I can just do five minutes of it and then keep going with my day. It's not like this big dramatic thing where I have to, you know, spend an hour doing self-analysis, blah, 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 blah. It's just quick and easy and move on. But also sometimes I'm just like, ah, oh, for God's sake, I just want to get on with my day. Like why do I keep tripping myself up? So sometimes I don't do it then and then I inevitably cause a few more problems for myself and then I go okay time to look at that <laughs> time to look at that now <laughs> all right now we have a full-on shit show on our hands well done for ignoring that <laughs> next time let's just take five minutes out of the day shall we <laughs> but that actually is I mean seriously that is I like to be really efficient I love efficiency and I love moving through um, my work in flow and so for me both my logical brain says it's way more efficient if you just deal with it now and then the part of my brain that loves to be in flow and the part of my being that loves to be in flow is also saying well we can't stay in flow if we don't do it so both all the parts of me are in alignment around deal with it and then get on with the day so that is that is helpful sam you're such a gift like, cool. honestly, I just feel like I've actually received a package in the mail, opened it and gone, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Thank you. Seriously. <laughs> Thank you. Carly, how do we even end this? Because I just want to keep going all night. I don't want it to end. Well, I know. I know. I do too. Um, but I can hear my daughter crying and I know my husband's probably losing his patience because she's still awake, awake and it's <laughs> 10 past nine and I'm about to go on retreat. <laughs> So, um, so we do think to wrap it up. Otherwise, we my marriage. You, Carly, we hear you, Carly. We've all been there. Um, but anyway, one, one. I'm sorry that things are so hard. So right now. I actually I'm just compassion it out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly, using compassion towards myself. But one thing that I'd written down was this idea of keeping good company, and it it is similar to the visibility thing, right? Like. We have to be the best company that we can to ourselves, just the same way as we need to be visible to ourselves. So I feel like that's where it all comes together, right? It's about seeing and hearing yourself first. And then when you're in that space, you're more open to, um, you know, the rest of your life going along a lot better. And having those great connections that you treasure exactly. because the strongest you connection can't is the one connect to, yourself, to other people right? if you're not connected with yourself you think that you're connected to other people but you're actually deeply disconnected from them and so until you are intimately connected with yourself you can't be connected to the environment hence what's going on on the on the planet this 
you know, right now, you can't be connected to your loved ones, which is why often women say to me, I don't know how to be present with my own kids. Like I'm just, I'm there, I'm trying to give them quality time, but I know I'm half there and half not. Even to know that is a a huge level of self-awareness because many, many people wouldn't even recognize they're not being present. But if you can't keep that connection to self, like, and when I say self, I'm talking about small self, I'm talking about large self, I'm talking about soul, I'm talking about the whole shebang, then you can't have these heart to heart connections. You can't actually hear people like they're talking and all you're doing is you're not actually listening to them with the fullness of your being. You're waiting for them to stop talking so you can start talking and you're already constructing in your head what you want to say rather than just sitting in silence allowing them to speak then noticing time for you to speak and then speaking and when you speak in that way then you actually have something that's meaningful to say you have something that's resonant you have something that's not just white noise you've got something that contributes to the world and that's what makes for when i when i work with women on being heard i'm always really bringing it back to being able to sit and listen and be in stillness because un- until you can do that you whatever you want to say isn't really you might be heard but it's not the kind of it's not the way your soul really wants to be heard in the world. And when you can just be in stillness and allow it to speak through you, then everybody who needs to hear you will hear you. And all the synchronicities of the universe will come to come to bear and you then will start to create quite magical experiences in your life. What a beautiful way to end. I'm going to go and be still for a minute. Carly's going to go and still her (laughs) child um, compassionately. And Sam, huge, massive gratitude for you sharing what you have with us because I just know this is going (laughs) to, this is going to trigger a lot of people. This is going to start a lot of internal conversations, I would imagine. And that's exactly your gift to the world. So thank you for thank sharing. Thank you for having me. And self-compassion, everyone. Self-compassion. We're all in this together. <laughs> we are. I promise you we are. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for sticking around. See you next Monday. Remember to subscribe. And keep good company.